Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. What is the purpose of ritual sacrifice in the Bible? Why is so much emphasis placed on blood sacrifice as a means of expiation? Why would Ezekiel incorporate blood sacrifice in his depiction of the heavenly Jerusalem? In a continuation of last week's theme, Richard and I discuss the importance of sticking with difficult or confusing texts, even when you're not sure what to make of them. A review of Ezekiel chapter 43 leads to an interesting discussion of Genesis and the sanctity of animal life. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 56 of the Bible as Literature podcast. This past week at the Ephesus School, we continued our discussion of perhaps the most exciting chapters in the book of Ezekiel. Yeah, if by exciting you mean tedious, I agree 100%, Father. <laughs> You're a scholar and an academic. You find boring things exciting. <laughs> I'm also a human being. I like a good story. Well, there is a story in chapter 43 and 44 of Ezekiel. And I think we had an example this weekend of how forcing oneself to work through a monotonous text can always bear fruit. That's what it, I find exciting. It always it always bears fruit. So we went from last week in Ezekiel where we heard about all of these detailed requirements about how to build this temple without an altar in the heavens to now hearing about the very strict regulations surrounding worship in this temple. And as the instructor was walking through the text, she was lamenting the fact that she didn't consider herself knowledgeable enough in scripture to be able to deal with some of the technicalities. However, by sticking with the text and working through it and forcing herself to stay in line with these boring details, she was eventually able to surface attention for the class and that had to do with the presence of blood sacrifice in the heavenly Jerusalem. This is actually evidence for what I was talking about last week, both in the Ephesus School and on the podcast, that when you run into something that is uncomfortable in the text, whether it is hard to make sense of, whether it's really boring, whether it's offensive, lean into the pain. Because what I've noticed is that sometimes people say, oh, this isn't clear to me because I'm not smart enough, or it's not clear to me because I'm not knowledgeable, or because I don't have a PhD, or because I haven't looked at the text enough, whatever. People say these things. But I think the point is, recognize what is uncomfortable about the text. Recognize that you're not getting it. Don't assume that it's you, that you're just not knowledgeable. Maybe the reaction you're having about the text is supposed to be there. Maybe that's the reaction you're supposed to have. Entertain that question. And then maybe you'll get somewhere with that question, with the pain or whatever it's causing you. And this is what you're saying, Father, is as a result, once we wrapped our head around what is one of the problems going on here, 
a great discussion opened up in the group. And that question was specifically about blood sacrifice because this person was doing research. What is it about blood sacrifice? Why blood sacrifice? And she was running across glib answers saying, oh, it's because the life is in the blood and, and the life belongs to God or um, blood is very precious to God. But she raised the question, well, water is precious to God. The earth is precious to God. I mean, why is blood more precious than something else? You can't have life without water. You can't have life without earth. You can't have life without plants. What is it about blood? And this, I thought, was a wonderful question that she posed that people don't spend enough time really trying to get to the bottom of. What is the problem with blood? Why blood? Now, one can say, well, in the ancient Near East, sacrifice just was a part of worship in the same way no one would ask the question, well, why would you pray? That doesn't make sense. Why not drive a car instead of pray? Well, my initial reaction when people talk about it being the historical context, my initial impulse is to question that if that's the case, why would Scripture be co-opting it? Scripture never just takes something wholesale. It either uses it as a vehicle or adopts it in order to undermine somehow the way it functions in its original setting. Right, and we see this in Ezekiel itself. I mean, a temple or an altar were part of worship. They were just assumed. But Scripture does all kinds of things to mess with that presupposition. So just because it was a normal part of worship doesn't mean that the Bible is just going to take it wholesale and just say this is how it has to be. It's going to undermine it. People are always building altars in the ancient Near East, but the Bible keeps saying quit building altars. Right. So if sacrifice and blood are a problem, the Bible would not have a problem saying stop it. And as a matter of fact, one of the things that got frustrating to me is that when I'm doing my research in the Book of the Twelve, it looks like worship in this way, this kind of sacrifice was going to end. And then I ran across in Ezekiel, and now I have to rethink some things. What is going on here? So here's an example again. I see a tension here. Well, Maybe that's precisely the tension we need to see. Maybe we need to draw our attention to the idea that when humans sacrifice, it causes problems. But when God sets it up in this heavenly Jerusalem, the one that we can't see, the ones that only if the people are good, Ezekiel's even going to tell them about, then maybe we'll have sacrifice. So there is tension in Scripture itself about sacrifice. And this person did a great job when she was teaching of bringing up this point. It is odd because when you think of the eschatological Jerusalem, the Jerusalem above, as Paul, you know, to use Pauline terminology, that you can't reach, you can't control, you can't build, it seems really strange to think about actually sacrificing animals there. So what's happening in the narrative where this is jarring suddenly to see this? I think one of the things that's jarring is that people have corrupted religion so much, they've made sacrifice into a quid pro quo equation. Okay, God, I've sacrificed this thing for you, so now you do this thing for me, which belies a completely erroneous assumption, which is that you can do anything for God. Well, right. It's the ancient lie of cultic ritual. Exactly. So you haven't done anything for God, so that undermines the entire presupposition. Now, does that mean the action itself is incorrect? I'm not sure. Based on this passage, though, 43 of 44 of Ezekiel, I would say, okay, there's something here, which now we have to struggle with. In struggling with it, the answer I would give is I would say, okay, we are supposed to sacrifice, but it's not supposed to be quid pro quo. We sacrifice because we have everything, and then we give it up as easily as we receive it. That's the thing, is that 
people are supposed to be not like a dam. People are supposed to be like a stream. It just flows through. We don't block it, use it how we need to, and whatever is extra, we kind of let it trickle through. Well, well, see, it's interesting. I asked the question because the instructor struggled with it for different reasons than you and I might. Than you, that the instructor struggled with this passage for different reasons than you or I might struggle with it. I'm thinking about it in terms of the heavenly city and sacrifice, but she was stuck on why does God want us to kill animals? And I thought that was also a very interesting and helpful question for discussion purposes in the class. So we immediately started talking about them in Genesis, which is the lifeblood, and about the advent of the animal sacrifice in Genesis, and how these things, you know, when Adam and Eve were forced to put on animal skins, it was a mark of shame, because they were in violation or in transgression of God's will, which resulted in the shedding of blood. Right. And the lifeblood in Genesis is an untouchable thing. It's the domain of God. Right. St. Ephraim says that they didn't know what death was. So God was going to show them. So he killed the animals and gave them the skin. So part of it is this shame. The sentence was death, but they don't know what death means. Right. So so the whole idea of, of sacrificing animals to expiate shame is intrinsically inherently problematic because the act of taking lifeblood is your punishment which consigns you to unrighteousness in a way. I mean, it's a very serious matter. People think you're not supposed to touch blood because it's dirty when they think of unclean. No, what's unclean is that you're touching something that doesn't belong to you, that you should not be messing with. Touching the blood, the lifeblood in Genesis is like someone walking into the sanctuary and touching the gospel on the holy table. You can't do that. You're not allowed to touch that. It's not something that you have the right to place your hand on unless the bishop blesses you to do so in a certain context at a certain time in a very specific way. So this was interesting because then we started talking about how the emphasis of the sanctity of lifeblood has to do with God's care and concern for life because Genesis is all about creating the setting for life so that life can flourish you know and you always have in not just in Genesis but generally in the Pentateuch when you have the accounting of households you always have the inclusion not just of the patriarch and his wives and his children but also the cattle that may live on the land where they dwell as a household and so forth it mentions the animals and in Genesis specifically there's great care taken to talk about the details of all the creatures out of the ground. And then Adam is, I mean, his very name implies that he's from the same ground. So unlike the popular anthropocentric readings of Genesis, which put man on a pedestal, the actual Hebrew text of Genesis puts man on the same level as all of the other creatures. Right? So you have this pattern forming in the Older Testament where all of the animals are important to God. All life counts. Man is but one part of a much broader picture, which is God's creation. Well, and there's this bittersweet aspect of killing the animals. And I'm sure that if you were an ancient shepherd, there is probably something to this. When Adam and Eve were given these skins, they covered the shame, but it was death to someone else, to something else. 
it was the shedding of blood for the sake of their shame. And it makes me think also of another point where we have this in Genesis 9, I believe, where Noah is told to sacrifice animals once the flood is over. Why would he sacrifice animals? Well, you could say, oh, it was a sweet smelling odor for God. So it says this. But the thing is, it's also bittersweet. Isn't it interesting that God had to destroy all life on the earth, walking on the earth, because of human being sin? So now as soon as life is able to begin again, the first thing is a reminder to Noah of the death that he causes, which in my mind goes to the work that I did a while ago on Zechariah, which is that as the human being sin, it causes these wars and it causes things to happen to them in order to teach them. But it takes God himself to come and act so that the people actually feel sorry about it. Right, because the sacrifice didn't work. This, Sacrificing animals over and over again never caused Israel to say, wait a minute, we're killing God's creatures. It caused Israel to say, let's make sure we do the sacrifice correctly so that we can expiate the uncleanness expiate the shame. Well, God wanted us to sacrifice, so we better make sure we do it the way he wanted us to. It's kind of like a parent that catches a child smoking for the first time. Is this okay? You want to smoke? Here, smoke this big fat cigar. Right? The parent's intention is that by smoking the cigar, the child will get sick and nauseated, maybe even throw up, and never want to look at nicotine again. But the reality is that after being exposed to that much nicotine, you probably want more. So it, it doesn't work. You know, as you say in Zechariah, God has to intervene in order to open their eyes so that they can see the one whom they've pierced, all of the peoples that they've persecuted through warfare and bloodshed. But this discussion, just to come full circle with the question of the lifeblood in Genesis, this discussion raised a new tension in the class because we started talking about the implications of the Genesis narrative. If God is saying that all life, even animal life, is precious to him, and he does not make any distinction when he looks at his creation. Genesis is not the story of the creation of Adam. It's the story of creation. It's the story of the totality, again, of which Adam is but a part. This is jarring for people who are anthropocentric. It's also jarring for people who are trying to figure out what they're going to have for dinner. Right? Because we just got out of liturgy. There was some food during the social gathering, but people are already thinking about their next meal. It's Sunday afternoon. And now suddenly, Father Mark is saying that you're not supposed to kill animals either. What am I going to eat? Right? And so a big discussion ensued. People were very frustrated. If God is saying we're allowed to sacrifice, then why can't we just eat meat? Yes, we understand the blood is precious, but... By that token, is it okay to kill plants? Because plants are part of life and the sap it functions the same way as the blood. Is this okay then? If we have to preserve the blood, should we be preserving the sap of the plants as well? I mean, this is a good question if you're going to extend it. But I think one of the problems is we want to say, how do we do it right? How are we supposed to do it right then, Father? This is the question. And I think, going back to what I was saying before, I think what we have to understand is that this is always a bounty that's given to us. Correct. But just like Paul, if my eating meat 
causes a scandal, I must stop eating meat. Meat is given for me to eat out of love. Meat is given to me to feed others. But meat is not for me to fill my belly. I had a Palestinian parishioner years ago tell me that whenever his family would get together for a meal and they'd bring chicken to the table, the father in the prayer of thanksgiving would give thanks for the offering of the chicken's life so that the family could live. And I think that humility and an attitude of thanksgiving and a shame that is appropriate to God's judgment are all embodied in that type of prayer. Because then you're eating chicken because you need to eat chicken to live, but you're eating chicken with a kind of deference toward God and his creation that somehow keeps you under control and limits you as an abuser of God's creation. And the example I gave in what became a somewhat controversial discussion this past Sunday was that of the food assembly line. When you are herding chicken and pumping them up with antibiotics and pumping them up with other drugs and putting them in close quarters and overfeeding them so that you can manufacture them at large volumes, or even worse, the way they treat cattle, putting them on assembly lines, having them live in terrible conditions, unclean conditions and so forth, where the animals themselves are miserable, so that we in wealthy Western countries can have meat three times a day, that is a transgression of the spirit of Genesis, without a doubt. There's a big difference between eating as much meat as you want whenever you want it and eating meat as needed in order to sustain life in the household with an attitude of humility, thanksgiving, and deference towards the cattle of the land and so forth. Well, and there's an ancient law that is biblical that one has to kill an animal if one wants to eat the meat. Now, for us, it seems kind of strange. But what you can do, let's say you're a shepherd, you don't have refrigeration, and you just need to have a small meal. What can you do? You've got all these animals. Why not just lop off one leg? They've got three other legs. You can chop off one leg, and they can still run. They can still survive. So why not just chop off one leg at a time? This is not allowed. Why not? It's very practical. You can get meat, and the rest of the animal is going to survive, and so it's not going to spoil. But it's cruel. It's cruel. This is the thing. You kill the animal out of kindness to the animal, so the animal doesn't suffer any more than it has to. It's interesting. In Judaism, later on, post-biblically, it developed a lot of rules about the blade itself that you have to use in order to sacrifice an animal or butcher an animal. There was no sacrifice. This is post-temple. You couldn't have a nick in the blade because you were not allowed to make the animal suffer more than it had to. It had to be killed in one stroke. Kosher laws are not just about how it lives. It's also about how it's killed and how it's butchered. And it has to be the most humane way possible. You do it by the neck. Yep. Because that way it bleeds to death quickly and it dies in the most humane way possible. But at the same time, we recognize that we are shedding blood for the sake of ourselves. And that already should make us feel a little bit nervous as human beings. Just as you said, looking on the one whom they pierced. Right. Now the question came up, well, that's irrational, Father Mark. 
how are we going to feed 20 million people if you can't process meat in large facilities on factory lines? I said, well, look. I said, Lent is coming. You can't solve the world's problems, but you can eat less meat or eat no meat at all. What's the big deal? People aren't satisfied with that answer because they want logical resolution, because they want to know what is right, what is wrong, what is sensible, what is stupid, so that they can figure out what they should do. But I go back to the prayer of this father, of my parishioner from Palestine. You have to eat the meat, but it's a compromise, and you're stuck. So I realize living in a Western industrialized society that the utopia of everyone going organic and living local is just that, it's a utopia. Now there are people that have different ideas about how we can change our society. All of that is wonderful, but scripture isn't interested in that. Scripture is addressing you. Are you greedy? Do you show lack of respect for creation? And do you possess the land or the fruit of the land or the creatures of the land as though they belong to you and are there for your use as you see fit? Now, sadly, this is how people have read Genesis historically, but that's not what the text is saying. Right. And I think going back to this strange thing, why in the end are we still supposed to be killing animals it's still something that's very difficult to work out and i think we're going to continue working it out but i think the fact that it's there forces us to have this conversation and forces us to ask ourselves the question what are we doing when we take life and i think this is precisely the question we need to be asking ourselves. great discussion this week thanks so much thank you you take care we'll see you just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.